0: Podcast is brought to you by Emon Publishing, Canada's leading independent legal publisher. Welcome to The Lawyers Lounge, a criminal law focused podcast. Wherever you are, whenever you are, The Lawyers Lounge is always open. Come on in. Hey, Lisa told me to tell you this. We are not your lawyer.
1: The Lawyers Lounge is an entertainment podcast and is not legal advice. Exciting episode for all of you today. We have Eric Gattardi back with us in the lounge to talk about the upcoming Supreme Court of Canada docket. It's uh, part one of a two, two-parter with Eric that I know uh, you will find uh, very fascinating. We also have uh, esteemed criminal lawyer Stephanie Di Giuseppe joining us to talk about Uh, The challenges facing uh, parents during uh, the lockdown here in Ontario and what the Criminal Lawyers Association has uh, done to assist. So uh, two uh, very able and fun advocates with us today in the lounge. Looking forward to it. So in the lounge, uh, we are so lucky to have Stephanie DiGiuseppe, Giuseppe, who is a, a, a very accomplished litigator and a partner at Ruby Schiller. And the reason we invited her to the lounge today, uh, though we could have invited her on a number of interesting uh, and difficult topics, uh, I wanted to chat with her about a letter that she wrote on behalf of the CLA. Uh, Uh, in February about uh, really, I think what could be termed as as a crisis moment for the profession in particular, women in the profession, maybe Steph, you can kind of take it away uh, and and walk us through what caused you to write this powerful letter um, in February.
2: Sure. Hi, Danielle, by the way, thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm happy to be here. Um, Okay. So in February, I was in my second round of lockdown. I have three kids under the age of five at home. Um, And during the first lockdown, the CLA convened a special working group to uh, try to address some of the challenges that had been faced by caregivers and parents uh, during the lockdown of the pandemic. And I was a member of that group. And we... um, didn't at that point write a letter like this for a variety of reasons. Uh, During the second lockdown, I found myself under even more pressure than the first. So even though a competence level had gone up, I think in terms of parenting and online school and all those sorts of things, suddenly the courts were fully operational. There was a ton of pressure from judges to Um, be essentially in full-time practice and to um, not just meet deadlines and make appearances, but to actually accelerate those things to address the backlog that the courts were facing. And I felt that uh, in this second wave of the lockdown, or the second lockdown rather, um, parents were really, really struggling. I was struggling. Most of my colleagues I spoke to were struggling on Twitter. I would see people posting things about struggling. And just in the greater world, I was reading so much about uh, mass exodus of women from the workforce because of COVID nineteen. Uh, so really, out of a kind of desperation, um, I reached out to that committee again to see if we should write something like this.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's certainly consistent with what I what I've seen um, in the profession, and and uh, you know, as a fellow uh, mom of twins. <laughs> <laughs>
2: we are both moms of twins. For the moms
1: <laughs> twins. Um, yeah, I I I too felt like the second lockdown nearly brought me to the to the breaking point. And um and I have an extremely supportive uh spouse who who uh takes on the the lion's share of the burden in terms of childcare and, and the education piece, but You know, I know that that is not true for a lot of our CLA sisters, right?
2: Totally. I mean, like, my husband is very supportive, but he, you know, doesn't have flexibility in his job. And so between the two of us, we were both struggling to meet the demands of work from home and school from home and childcare from home, uh, usually with one to two children tugging on the bottom of our shirts. Um... And you know the other thing that I found was different in the second lockdown was the first lockdown was horrible and it was very scary, but there was also this sort of feeling uh, like this pervasive feeling in our society that we were in it together and we were supporting each other that I think helped to ameliorate a lot of the stress and fear. And in the second lockdown, I felt that that larger cultural connection really wasn't there either um so it was it was also a lot more just emotionally um yeah yeah Yeah, Yeah. more
1: isolating for sure and I you know I I have to say (laughs) Stephanie when I read your letter part of me felt and I don't know if this is just related to my um fundamental narcissism but uh I I felt a bit guilty because You know, so many of us were at the forefront of pushing for um, remote hearings, pushing for um, electronic hearing of of trials to try to address the backlog. And I think um, in pushing for that reform um, in service of our clients, I think it may have backfired on
2: us. I don't think so. I mean, I think that reform was very necessary. And, you know, we talk about that a bit in the letter, like I say uh, transitioning to remote hearings is a good thing. Giving priority to criminal cases is a good thing. Um, but now that we have that huge structural change that was so needed in our court system in place, uh, we have to start refining it in a way that respects um, the mental health and obligations of practitioners. And so
1: what do we want the judiciary to to know? And you know, I know a lot of them are listening. I get notes um, from judges all the time who tune into the podcast. And so obviously we commend the letter. We'll include a link to the the letter in, in um, the notes to the podcast. But just briefly, what do we want judges to know and what do we want them to do?
2: So the greatest thing that I heard when I was information gathering to write this letter was um, a call for... A collaborative and non-adversarial approach to scheduling. So sometimes it's just the it's just the qualitative aspect of that, mm. um, making sure that uh, parents and caregivers feel that they can talk about these issues in court and that the judiciary cares about and understands these issues and will accommodate these issues. Um, you know, lots, lots and lots of judges are. And I got a lot of that feedback, but it's not, it's not unanimous and it's not clearly outlined. And so people don't know what to expect when they bring forward a concern like this. And so just that was something people spoke about a lot. Uh, But some of the other sort of more practical mechanisms that we talk about in the letter had to do with, um, The idea that now that we're doing things remotely, we don't necessarily have to have the same rigid court day that we have in the traditional court system. So we don't need to always start at the same time, um, break at the same time for the same durations, lunch at the same time for the same durations. We can uh, mold the day in a way that uh, accommodates schedules of lawyers that are caregivers and, you know, it's not forever, but it's a good way to strike a balance between making sure that clients get the court dates that they need and practitioners and their children and family members are not neglected um, at what is already a really difficult time for children and elderly people. Yeah. yeah.
1: And it, what can we do um, as as colleagues and, and allies for those who are listening who um, don't have a caregiving role in their life yet, uh, or any longer. Um, uh, and I know, you know, we, we talk about the defense bar, but, um, I, I, I don't remember a crown pre-trial that I've had since the last lockdown, where there hasn't been a screaming, uh, child on the other end. I mean, there are a lot of crowns out there shouldering, um, significant caregiving burdens and just, you know, <laughs> killing it uh, as best they can. Um, but what what can we do to support each other as, as colleagues?
2: I mean, the easiest thing we can do is help each other and be understanding with one another. I know that um, when I was in a situation where Crown I was working with, um, we were doing written submissions and there were deadlines for those written submissions. And I would usually be pretty adamant about those deadlines for written submissions, but during the pandemic, and with the consent and understanding of my client, um, was able to give some leeway about uh, when those written submissions would be provided to me, um, for me to start drafting my response. So it's just little things like that I think yeah. we can do to make each other's life easier. I, you know, One of the biggest things I think we can do, and we're pretty good at this in the defense bar, is just be kind with one another and Mm -hmm. appreciate that everybody's going through their own struggles. And that goes for practitioners who are caregivers and practitioners who aren't caregivers. I can't say practitioners who aren't caregivers should just jump in and shoulder the burden that their colleagues um, can't take on right now because everybody has their own struggles as a result of the pandemic.
1: Yeah. Yeah, totally. I I think if I could just add to the list, I would like to see more men be vocal in court about their child giving and child, child care. (laughs) I'm going to start that over again.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I liked it. Child giving. They do kind of.
1: Uh,
2: um, One thing that I think our
1: male colleagues could, um, could assist with is be more explicit about their own responsibilities uh, vis-a-vis childcare and care caretaking in in the family dynamic I think that um, we still have a lot of work to do in busting that taboo that um, in the legal profession that men uh, and I know lots of lawyers who've taken paternity leave who um, are like the number one caregiver in their their families and I think that um, you know, the male mem- members of our profession could be explicit and on the record about those responsibilities and ask for accommodations where appropriate. I think it'll do a lot to demystify that, um, that ask and make a lot of younger um, and, and female members of the bar feel more comfortable.
2: You know, I think that's a really great point. I was so fortunate and I'll give a shout out to my old boss, Dirk Durstine on this, but I did a whole bunch of long trials with Dirk. And so often he would stand up in court and say, nope, can't sit late. I have uh, pickup responsibilities for over my kids today, or, um, you know, I, I can't come in today because one of my children is sick. And my wife, who's also a defense lawyer, um, as most listeners probably know, is in something that she can't miss. And so having that role model uh, as a male member of the profession, I think made me a lot more assertive right from the beginning of my career. Yeah. At, well, my, the beginning of my career with children about those kinds of things.
1: Yeah, no, I think, I think that's great. And it'll be um, awesome to see people kind of follow in Dirk's footsteps on that. Well, uh, Steph, thank, thank you for writing the letter. It, it's a really great letter and super substantive. I mean, it just, um, it's like classic Di Giuseppe in, in that there, I think, how many footnotes in this friggin' thing? <laughs> it's, it's well-researched um, and uh, it's a really a solid, solid effort. And I really hope that the judiciary and, and our colleagues pick it up and thank you for your leadership on this.
2: Uh, my pleasure and I can tell you the responses have been positive so far and I think it's going to gain some traction. Awesome. What is a
1: reasonable expectation of privacy in the digital age? Search and Seizure, Iman's latest addition to the award-winning criminal law series explores key concerns around digital search and seizure powers, including 487 search warrants, internet search history, warrantless searches, and exclusion of evidence. With practice tips from both a Crown and Defence perspective, this 800-page comprehensive guide analyzes viewpoints of right holders, police officers, and judges reviewing police conduct. With well-respected authors Nader Hassan, Mabel Lai, David Sherbrooker, and Randy Schwartz, this practical handbook is bound to become a must-have resource for Defence, Crown, and judiciary. To get your copy today, visit emon.ca slash LLP SS and enter promo code lawyers lounge for 10% off. Again, that's Emon.ca slash LLP SS promo code lawyers lounge for 10% off your copy of search and seizure. Very happy to have Eric Gattardi, QC, back in the lounge. He's a partner at Peck & Company in Vancouver. He's a learned trial and appellate advocate and friend, longtime friend of the podcast. And he's an avid, avid Supreme Court of Canada advocate and and watcher. Uh, And we've been keeping our eye on the spring schedule for the SEC and looking at some of the cases coming up. And we wanted to give you a bit of a primer on the, the biggies, the big ones, uh, coming up for the court last week, the Supreme Court heard Cahill, which is uh, a case about the new, new in quotation marks, Eric, self, self-defense self provisions of the criminal code. What do you have to say about that case?
3: Yeah, that's right. So um, uh, I'm glad you helped me with the pronunciation of Cahill. Um, but, you know, Cahill, you know, is a secondary mur- murder case. Uh, Cahill was charged with uh, the secondary murder of Mr. Uh, Stiers. Uh, uh, Forgive me if the pronunciation is wrong on that, but uh, basically Cahill, a former army reservist is uh, woken up and uh, someone is breaking into his truck and uh, he confronts the intruder with a shotgun and and ends up uh, shooting the man uh, dead. And so Normally might be a tough self-defense case just on some of those facts, um, but uh, argued in front of the jury that uh, he thought the person had a had a weapon and was simply defending himself when he fired. And so it, uh, it was a 12 day trial and Mr. Cahill was acquitted by the jury. And the Crown appealed on a number of grounds, but the, the ground that may be of interest to most going forward is, uh, the ground which the Ontario Court of Appeal thought uh, the, where the judge made an error, which was in considering um, the role of the the role of the accused in the incident. And so, you know, one of the old provisions, you know, we had all those different subsections which talked about, you know, if you had started the altercation, there were certain rules and, and uh, prerequisites that had to be met for you to access self-defense. And of course, all of those, very specific uh, prerequisites have been removed. But uh, here the court found that, you know, having kind of initiated or, or had, had an integral role in the creation of this confrontation, that the court had to do a, a much better and clearer job uh, articulating what the jury had to do in terms of considering Mr. Cahill's role in the incident and whether his actions were reasonable. And so it's the linkage of, uh, the person's role in the incident and what's reasonable. So you know, having chosen to confront this person rather than simply call the police, was it reasonable for him to, you know, to sh- shoot him with a shotgun twice? Um, and obviously that's an oversimplification, but that's essentially what the, the, the kind of issue is and where the court found error. And so like in all these cases, it's the, it's the first time the court's going to look at the new self-defense, self-defense provisions. And as you say, new as of March 2013, um, I'm surprised it's the first time the court has wrestled with uh, self-defense since then. But <clears throat> you know, if the court comes back and says, you know, makes some some you know strong statements about uh, the apparent strength of uh, self-defense on these facts, or uh, says, you know, g- depending on what they say about uh, the role of uh, the accused person and in, in the assessment of the ultimate reasonableness of his or her actions, I think, you know, we'll have a, a fairly pronounced uh, impact on how courts interpret some of these things going forward. You know, is if they say the only reasonable thing to do was to call the police, you know, that's going to foreclose a lot of uh, self-defense arguments from you know, especially coming out of a regime under the conservatives for a decade, where our prime minister was encouraging people to get out on their porch with their shotguns and defend their property, uh, you know, fairly aggressively. So, you know, the 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 war, we all put the warnings out then that that kind of conduct might get you into trouble, and conduct like this is uh, is perhaps the logical extension of. Some of those actions. Um, you know, you can't go out and blow someone away for breaking into your truck. So if you create the situation and it then turns deadly as against you personally, obviously self defense may have an application, but you know, um, you had a role in starting, you know, creating that confrontation. And so if the court says uh, it was bad judgment to, to exit your house, then, you know, they'll, I think there'll be a lot of people that get caught down the road in terms of whether they're going to be able to avail themselves of self-defense. So it'll be interesting to see what the court does with that. The subtext, of course, <clears throat> like a case I just had in our court of appeal, there was, there is a racial co- uh, kind of subtext to this case um, that the courts don't, they, the courts will often sidestep as being kind of quote unquote irrelevant to um the determining of the legal issues. But, um, uh, you know, the person, you know, I believe my, my notes are the, the accused was of Caucasian descent and the, the victim was, you know, a First Nations man, I think of, of Cree, uh, Cree descent. And so, you know, like the Bushi case, uh, you know, some of these cases that have a racial uh, context can put the court in and, and parliament sometimes in a difficult position where they make some changes that maybe aren't to the benefit of the law or the application of the law going forward generally, but are, are responsive to a particularly bad or hard set of facts.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, I watched the the webcast of the argument and, um, you know, a few few takeaways. I would say that the majority of the court seemed deeply uncomfortable with this idea that You know, you hear a noise happening from your driveway in a car that's in the driveway. It's not connected to your house and you load your shotgun and make your way down there stealthily. They didn't like that. Um, It's clear that they don't they didn't like that set of facts. They considered that set of facts to be ugly, notwithstanding it's a remote area. Um, you know, that he wasn't in a, in a suburban neighborhood or, or an urban area. They didn't like those facts. They rubbed them the wrong way. It also rubbed them the w- wrong way that, you know, the wisdom of the jury was being questioned by the, the Court of Appeal um, uh, on, on something that seemed pretty, pretty narrow. And, you know, this one reading of, the, of these provisions is, is that we're asking juries to kind of eyeball it, you know, like, take a look at this. Does this seem reasonable to you? Like, here are some factors for you to look at and um, and tell us what you think. And then to kind of go in with a um, with a fine view and and pick at something uh, seems absurd uh, uh, in in the circumstances. So I think the court appeared to be really struggling between being uncomfortable both with uh, reversing a a, a jury. Um, a jury's wisdom on this and also just not liking the kind of Texan flair of loading your shotgun and, and marching out there. So, you know, the other thing I would say is for all the students that are preparing for the, the gale right now and preparing for moots, um, uh, through the year, Michael Lacey put on, a, you know, a masterclass and how to answer just, uh, innumerable questions from, from the court via webcast. Um, uh, just question after question after question, extremely responsive uh, answers, and used every question to to advance his his argument on behalf of Mr. Cahill further every time. And so, I really commend uh, the webcast for everyone listening. It's it's really it's really worthwhile. Um, the next one that I wanted to talk to you about, uh, Eric, is um, it's an as of leave. Appeal at the W O case, uh, which is out of again our uh, Ontario Court of Appeal in Ontario, um, where Justice Nordheimer uh, dissented, uh, and it's really kind of a, a run of the mill um, historical sexual allegations case, uh, a father and daughter situation. Um, in some ways, it's just a little case, um, but it caught my eye. What what do you think when you when you saw it, Eric?
3: Well, yeah, I think um, for appellate lawyers out there, I think you know WO is you know has the potential to be uh, you know kind of an interesting case, and you know depending on how it goes, potentially the start of a bit of a trend from the Supreme Court of Canada. You know the the issue in WO, you know it's a it's a fairly fairly aggravated sexual assault, um, familial sexual assault case. And, you know, a number of inconsistencies were uh, highlighted and driven home by counsel uh, in the course of the trial. And uh, uh, despite that fact, the trial judge found the complainant to be credible and reliable and uh, and convicted uh, the accused. And on appeal, the argument was that the trial had essentially just sidestepped a bunch of the inconsistencies in the complaints evidence. And as such, uh, you know, you, you have to, you have to clothe these arguments in a, in a ground of appeal. And so was it a misapprehension of evidence? Was it insufficient reasons? You know, appellate counsel always struggle with how to categorize some of these errors. And sometimes, you know, clothe them in both Uh, but you know it was framed as insufficiency of reasons uh, and kind of a a failure to address material inconsistencies and you know the the upshot of the majority decision seems to be that you know insufficiency of reasons alone is is not a freestanding right of appeal effectively Um, and that you not only have to show or demonstrate that the reasons are, are insufficient, but that, that they cause prejudice uh, to your ability to um, effectively appeal from the conviction. And, you know, I, I, I do think that the majority's decision suggests that, um, or, or is, you know, has the effect of kind of raising the bar in, in terms of what an accused has to demonstrate in terms of insufficiency of reasons. Um, which was already fairly high, right? I mean, you know, you've got, <laughs> you've got, uh, you know, Shepard, and then you've got, you know, uh, the revisitation, the unfortunate revisitation in REM, uh, uh, you know, where the court is bending over backwards to make it clear that the judges don't have to provide a detailed pathway to conviction. Uh, they don't have to document every thought or every finding or address every inconsistency. but um, you know, but it, but there has been a fairly well developed thread in the case law that you know where there are where there are significant material inconsistencies in uh, in the testimony of the key witness where you know the the person's credibility is the the issue at trial to be litigated, that the judge has to deal with those uh, in the course of their reasons and you know, the concern here is that that maybe you know that that line of case law is going to be undermined um, in a way that's not too dissimilar from what the court recently said in the Mahari case um, where they kind of you know they addressed this, the, the equally or even more difficult ground of appeal of uneven scrutiny t- to the evidence um, and just questioned whether that, that was even a, a standalone ground of appeal as well, um, uh, and uh, you know, again, said that you know, even if that ground exists, um, you have to link it to some other kind of distinct um, fault or error in the judgment. So, hopefully, this is not turning into a trend from the Supreme Court of much much greater deference to trial judges and. Uh, you know, a real restriction and limitation on these kinds of, um, you know, either evidentiary based appeals, uh, or uh, w- you know, where the focus is really on the judges and their what they put in their in their judgments and the the, the declaratory, uh, the important declaratory and, and explanatory purpose of reasons and why we ask judges to write reasons um, so that the accused persons understand why their evidence was rejected or understand why they were convicted and uh, you know have the ability to review those reasons and counsel have the ability to determine if the judge made an error and um, you know I I don't think we're going back to a a, you know a time where we're going to give the go-ahead to three-line reasons but on the other hand you know, we're trending in that direction, you know, in some of these cases, and it's concerning to me, especially when, especially in the context of a of a top court, that it is itself um, moving away from detailed reasons in many cases. Yeah. Uh, you know, even dissenting dissenting judgments where, um, you know, the parties are left to divine what the court meant or simply advert back to the written decisions of the appellate level to figure out why they won or lost a case and i, I think it's a problematic trend
1: it is and i and it, particularly in a case like this you know a historical sexual assault case where the danger of a wrongful conviction is is pretty apparent you know these cases there, there are no forensic evidence or no injuries there's no corroborating evidence available required um, Uh, or that would even be helpful, right? Because we know that, um, that victims of abuse can behave in all all sorts of ways during the course of, of their abuse. So, you know, all you have is um, the evidence of, of the complainant to be challenged with previous statements. And that's it. That's all, that's all you have to, um, to come to a, a just verdict and where um, the trial judge doesn't engage meaningfully with the inconsistencies drawn out in, in cross examination. How can any of us be assured that, that um, the verdict is safe? And you know, here, I think I, I quite liked the way Justice Nordheimer dealt with the, this issue of injuries. I, I commend the case for all of you listening, but there was this, this issue of whether the complainant had scars remaining from her her abuse. And she was very inconsistent on whether the scars were present or or not present. You know, those of us who practice in this area, we're always looking for independent evidence that would either corroborate the claim or contradict the claim. And we see those as kind of anchors for your argument and something that the trial judge can grasp onto in this, in a kind of a sea of credibility and reliability issues. And if even those sorts of facts are not available to us um, in these cases uh, I think it's going to be really difficult not only for appellate lawyers to figure out how are they how they're going to frame these arguments but for trial lawyers uh, in terms of developing a, de- a defense strategy and a theory of the case
3: yeah yeah I couldn't I mean I couldn't agree more I think um, <clears throat> You know, it's the, it's the basic, it's, the, it's just the basic level of, of procedural fairness that the accused is entitled to, in my view, is a, is a detailed set of reasons where very specific uh, problems and inc- inconsistencies have been highlighted to the trier of fact, relied upon by the defense. Um, they, are in, they are in essence your defense, and you're entitled to know why but those things weren't, uh, weren't accepted and your defense wasn't successful.
1: And I guess, uh, you know, continuing along, um, uh, in the, in the, the canon of, of sexual assault cases coming before the court, <laughs> we have, um, Kirk, Kirkpatrick from, uh, your court of appeal, Eric. And, um, uh, my notes here say, what a mess. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Yeah, well, that's, um, that's a good way to describe it, that's for sure. And, and leave it to, to our court of appeal to kind of to wade into it uh, with both feet. But uh, you know, Kirkpatrick is a, is a sexual assault case where um, you know, the complainant had consented to sexual intercourse on the condition that the accused wear a condom. Um, and the, the two individuals had sex twice uh, and the, on the second time unbeknownst to the complainant, the accused did not wear uh, a condom. And so the accused was charged with sexual assault. And so <clears throat> a trial following a no evidence motion, the accused was acquitted. And <clears throat> the judge found that there was no evidence uh, that the complainant had not consented to the sexual activity uh, as that's understood under 273.1 of the code nor did the evidence show that the accused had engaged in fraud in terms of actively deceiving the complaint into thinking that he was in fact uh, wearing a condom contrary to 265 sub three. So um, that was the issue and really um, how to properly interpret and apply the Supreme Court of Canada's decision in Hutchison and uh, the Court of Appeal unanimously allowed the Crown's appeal in order to do trial, but they split on the way that they got there. Uh, the majority found that um, and interpreted Hutchison to believe that, you know, when someone limits their consent to sexual intercourse on the condition that the partner wear a condom, that in itself is a particular sexual activity. And if there's, if there's sex without a condom, that, uh, that's not the same physical act. Um, and that was the basis on which they found the judge had erred and ordered a new trial. Uh, Justice Bennett, on the other hand, um, interpreted Hutchison uh, and focused on the fraud aspect um, and said, look, you know, sexual intercourse is sexual intercourse. The sexual activity is the same. The real problem is, uh, is the dishonest component, the dishonesty or the fraud. And, you know, in, in omitting to tell the, the complainant that uh, he wasn't wearing a condom during the sexual act, um, that he had committed a fraud, essentially, and sent it back on that basis. So, um, you know, uh, this is, I think, a common situation that arises in many uh, you know, sexual interactions um it doesn't often get litigated, but it, it has, and it's gone all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada and it's going to again. So the court's going to have an opportunity to clarify uh, what it meant in Hutchison and um, how Hutchison should apply to these particular facts. You know, is it um, is the activity the same? Is sexual intercourse with a condom the same as without? And if you're consenting to one, you're consented to all. Uh, and should should the activity remain kind of framed as one in fraud, uh, or will they kind of take the branch offered by Justice Groberman for the majority from the BC Court of Appeal and um, clarify that in fact, in essence, it's a different uh, it's a different activity that's being agreed to?
1: And I guess we we can look forward to um, you know wild hypotheticals that have to do with the gender blind nature of our criminal code and, and whether, you know, if, if uh, a woman uh, fails to take her birth control and, um, and has sex on that basis with her sexual partner, um, you know, has her partner been sexually assaulted when um, the truth is revealed? Um, so I think I think it'll be it'll make for a fun argument anyway, and I I, I imagine it's going to capture the imagination of Canadians.
3: Yeah, I, w- I would imagine there'll be some fairly lively interventions. Uh, keep your eyes peeled for uh, for Justice Muldoon and Justice Abella to get uh, get fired up and ask some good questions here. I mean, it's not the first time that the BC Court of Appeal has suggested that. Um, the majority in a Supreme Court of Canada case couldn't possibly have meant what it said, uh, and so um, having tried to get having tried to get one of those cases up on leave myself, uh, I'll be excited to see what the court has to say about uh, if they really meant what they said in Hutchison and how they deal with that issue.
1: Now I, I've kept you a long time, Eric. Is are you looking at anything else uh, this year at the Supreme Court? Anything? we should be looking for in terms of, of trends, uh, other cases?
3: Well, you know, I know I've, I've talked way too long already, Danielle, but um, the, the case of Sullivan that's going up uh, involves, um, you know, two cases and it's of interest because, uh, just because we had, we had a case ourselves uh, that was, you know, had some similarities on the facts. And so we we're kind of looking into these issues. And, it, you know, the case involves two separate accused in two separate incidents uh, that involved a drug-induced psychosis. And so um, one of the accused, Mr. Chan, um, and, you know, listeners are probably familiar with this case, or at least might have heard about it in the press, um, was intoxicated by Magic Mushrooms at, at the time when he um, kind of lost touch with uh, reality and ended up killing his father and. and, and grievously injuring his father's partner Uh, and then mr sullivan who was also intoxicated with prescription drugs uh, in a suicide attempt um, and then ended up repeatedly stabbing his uh, his elderly mother and so uh, because on in both of these situations it was the intoxication was self-induced they weren't entitled to raise the uh, defense of non-mental disorder automatism and they were convicted. And so, uh, the Ontario Court of Appeal held uh, on appeal that section 331 of the code, which uh, provides the kind of statutory bar, uh, violates section 7 and 11 D of the Charter, uh, and therefore uh, should be struck down. And the court really focused on the fact that the law, as, as it was quoted, Uh, contravenes virtually all of the criminal law principles that the law relies upon to protect the morally innocent, uh, including the presumption of innocence. And so uh, obviously when this decision came down, there was a huge splash in the media and then a bit bit of a public outcry, uh, largely based on misinformation and misleading uh, media reports that all of a sudden, you know, you could just get drunk and go on a a huge uh, crime spree and assault and kill and and, and rape and do all sorts of things. And as long as you were wasted, it would be okay. Which of course is, there's no resemblance to what the court found, right? Um, You know, non-mental disorder automatism is still one of the highest bars you could possibly have to meet in the criminal law. It's only in these rarest of situations where you've, you know, you've, you've ingested the drugs for, for some ulterior motive, right? Whether it's, self-harm or recreation or what have you, um, you know, and then there's a completely, um, uh, you know, un, uh, unexpected reaction or unexpected uh, result that, it, you know, is not part of the the person's history, is not part of how they've reacted to the certain drugs in, in a certain situation where really there's just a complete absence of, Uh, The criminal intent, the evil intent, and so you could have a, you know, an essentially largely morally blameless person uh, being convicted of some of the most serious uh, criminal offenses uh, and punished to that effect. And so um, it was a very, you know, very, very interesting and powerful set of judgments. And it'll be very interesting to see uh, what the Supreme Court of Canada does in both of these cases if they're going to kind of face them. Head on, or uh, defer to Parliament in the ongoing dialogue between the courts and uh, the executive branch of government? Uh, or are they going to provide guidance to Parliament of what, what they should do going forward? Um, you know, it's it'll, it'll be very interesting to see how these cases are are argued and how the court uh, how the court takes them and deals with the, these issues. But um, you know, in in some recent cases. Uh, you know the court um, the court ha- has shown uh, a tendency to um, you know be willing to defend some of the real core criminal law principles um, and uh, you know you know the onus being on the crown to prove uh, to lead evidence, the onus being on the crown to prove uh, guilt beyond a reasonable doubt and again, uh, you know, criminal guilt and criminal punishment only following only following the morally blameworthy is is about as central as you get to the core principles of our criminal justice system. So, we'll see if um, if the court kind of maintains that uh, that trend in some of their some of their recent jurisprudence.
1: Well, thank you, Eric. I think. Um... You know, 2021, notwithstanding the pandemic, is a big year at the court. Um, and uh, you know, I think they've adapted pretty well in terms of the electronic hearings. They're, they're e- easy to watch, and um, I don't like the head headphones; they look pretty dorky. But apart from that, far <laughs> <laughs> from that, I think they're 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 managing, and um, and they got a they've got a full caseload ahead of them.
3: Yeah, they sure do. I think the the court. If you go to the Supreme Court of Canada, you should get a complimentary set of AirPods that you get to use, and <laughs> and that's that's part of your uh, that's part of your swag bag when you go to the Supreme Court of Canada. It, it would improve the watchability. But uh, sorry for joining on so long, Danielle. But a pleasure no. to be with
1: you today. Yeah, it's so nice to chat. Talk soon.
0: Crown Prosecutor Jill Whitkin and defense lawyer Daniel Brown offer an extensive examination of the legal processes involved in litigating sexual offenses in the much-awaited Prosecuting and Defending Sexual Offense Cases, second edition. This edition contains new chapters on historical sexual offenses and cross-examination on private records. The text reflects the extensive changes to the Criminal Code brought upon by Bills C-51 and C-75 pertaining to third-party records, other sexual history, and consent. This bestseller is designed to help practitioners focus on the procedural, evidentiary, and strategic elements specific to sexual offense cases. These elements include search issues, children's evidence, cross-examination on private records, and sentencing. Revised forward by Marie Hennin, contributions from Cecilia Hageman, Megan Cunningham, Don Way, Adam Weisberg and Colleen McEwen. To learn more and order your copy today, visit emond.ca/llp-so2. For our listeners, emond is offering 10% off. Just visit emond.ca/llp-so2 and enter code Lawyers Lounge at checkout.
1: Big thank you to Eric and Stephanie for making time for us in this episode and joining me in the lounge. Had a great time chatting with them and I hope I see you all soon in the Lawyer's Lounge. The Lawyer's Lounge is produced, engineered, and edited by Alex Ross of Never Sleeps Network, directed and published by Danan Hawes and marketing by Carly Pompeco.
3: My name is Paul Emond. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lawyer's Lounge. We at Emond Publishing are committed to providing best-in-class criminal law content, including our award-winning criminal law series, edited by Brian Greenspan and Justice Rondinelli, new initiatives like The Lawyer's Lounge podcast, as well as our Emond exam prep resources and criminal law casebooks for law students.